Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary practice issues. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP, and its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. Hi, this is Daniel Koba, the editor of AJHP. Thanks for joining us for this episode of AJHP Voices. Today, we'll be discussing the clinical report, Practical Implementation of Remote Continuous Glucose Monitoring in Hospitalized Patients with Diabetes, which was recently published on AJHP.org. From North Kansas City Hospital, joining me today are Dr. Matt Baker, Pharmacy Clinical Supervisor, Dr. Megan Musselman, Emergency Medicine Clinical Pharmacy Specialist, and Rachel Rogers, Diabetes Care Coordinator. We're also joined by Dr. Richard Hellman, a clinical endocrinologist of Hellman and Rosen Endocrine Associates. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. Matt, I'm sort of interested in your perspectives on what drove the need to implement continuous glucose monitoring in the inpatient setting. So prior to the COVID-19 pandemic really hitting, we had initiated a small study in continuous glucose monitors in our facility. Uh, we were looking at 30 patients and how it worked. We were doing this through our glycemic control subcommittee, and this was a, a kind of an idea Dr. Hellman had, and we'd helped bring to fruition. So having that in place and having that small study prior to the pandemic, we knew the logistics to set it up. We knew how to make it work, and we had the equipment. We also had an administrative team that was supportive of the concept. So when we really got into COVID and you know, we didn't have PPE for everything we needed. We wanted to isolate as much as we could and not put the nurses in harm's way. We didn't have vaccines. We could potentially use the CGMs to, you know, potentially reduce finger sticks, maybe avoid hypoglycemia and really try to help with that whole scenario. It really was kind of the right place, right time for some of that and having the pieces of information available. Got it. So it was safety, uh, therapeutics and the COVID-19 situation was a driver as well. Rachel, as the as a diabetes educator, what would you add to that? So from my perspective, it definitely was a excellent safety option. Um, I've worked in critical care and as a diabetes educator. And so having nurses, having that one more piece of patient safety information to make sure their patients weren't getting hypoglycemic when we really couldn't be in their rooms as often as we would like during COVID-19. Um, so I feel like, again, right time, right situation, um, but really to the benefit of our patients and nurses. Richard Hellman, through a physician's lens, for you, what drove the implementation? We've heard safety, we've heard quality, we've heard the circumstances around COVID-19, but for you, were there additional factors that drove the need to implement uh, CGM in the inpatient setting? Yes, I, I think CGM is going to completely revolutionize and has already revolutionized what we can do in patient care with diabetes because it's changing from a snapshot in time to a continuous record and, and uh, ability to see trends and, and the consequences of what's happening over an extended period of time. It's something uh, we've been involved in research with for about 15 years, and it, it has changed what we do in the outpatient setting. So I've been anxious for years to bring this technology to the hospital. It's long overdue. And I'm glad it's happening right now. 
We're really fortunate today, and this, I have to say, is a, a bit unusual in terms of the interviews that we do for this podcast. We oftentimes have multiple authors, but I can't think of a time where we've been so fortunate to have an entire interdisciplinary team on together and the unique perspectives that you bring. And, and I'm wondering, even as you talk about your think about your roles in implementing the project, what each of you as pharmacists nurse, diabetes educator, physician, uh, what your specific roles are. And, and so Megan, I'll start with you. And at some point, maybe Matt will want to add in. But from a pharmacy perspective, if, if you could start to talk about what your role was in conceptualizing the, the program and uh, implementing and uh, evaluating. Yeah, so a lot of our role was initially to get it up and going and educate. And so we both, um, in conjunction with the diabetes educator, provided education for not only the pharmacist staff, but also the nursing staff. Um, in addition, we had to develop a very streamlined, straightforward process for setting up each device. One thing that I'm very proud of is that we did have pharmacists available that were knowledgeable on the process 24-7. And so that can really help with initiation of these devices as well as troubleshooting. In addition, as we went through this process, we also found that the pharmacist can play a role in identifying these patients more timely and work in coordination within the nursing and physician team to identify patients that would uh, warrant um, one of these devices. Matt, anything you would add to that from uh, the pharmacy perspective in terms of the role of pharmacists in the pharmacy department? So, you know, one of the things that comes up with a CGM is no one's really sure who's going to own these inpatient yet. You know, it would seem like it would be a lab scenario. It could be bioinformatics. It could be pharmacy. Um, but somebody has to communicate and coordinate all of this information. And a lot of the role I did was coordinating with administration and getting approvals to do different things and setting up the background so we could keep the data and make sure that we maintained it, had everything coordinated to be able to put it together on the backside. Got it. Got it. Rachel, from a, a the perspective of a nurse and a diabetes educator, what was what were your roles on on the on the team? Um, a large portion of my role was really to help translate to nurses what the plan was, you know, how we wanted to set these up, how they were useful, um, you know, when nurses first heard that we were going to start using them, they're like, well, how is this going to make my job any easier? Is this one more thing that I have to learn? And really showing them the benefits of it and how that could not only change their roles now, but to change future of patient care um, was something that I really enjoy and was really able to work with the nurses for. I also helped educate the patients on why we're using them um, and how it would benefit the patient. Rachel, about approximately how many nurses uh, daily lives were affected by the implementation of this program? What was the, what was the scope of that education program and getting, uh, getting those nurses comfortable with uh, the implementation of CGM? Um, so initially, we were really focusing on the critical care areas, and in order to really 
bring this into implementation, um, we needed to educate everybody who was typically on those critical care units. So I was going probably two or three times a week to meet with the nurses that were already there and educate them on that. And so I would have anywhere from, you know, 10 to 15 nurses to educate in a day. Um, and that, again, wasn't every day, but definitely trying to filter in all of those critical care staff, as well as the managers, so they knew what their staff was dealing with. Got it. Got it. Richard Holman, from a physician perspective, again, your role on on the team as the, as the physician member of the team? One of the things I think that was key for me is taking a technology, which we are using a great deal in the outpatient setting and implementing it in the hospital setting. We know it works on the outpatient side. And for me, this was very easy because I started my academic career working with the clinical pharmacist as a key member of our team. And uh, we learned very well how important and valuable that could, that could be. And, and I have enormous faith and trust in Matt because Matt does everything that I think a clinical pharmacist should do in a hospital setting and very, very well and works so well with others. It's one thing to have a great idea and a great concept. And I think CGM is something that will change how we care for diabetes. It's doing it already. It's quite another thing to implement the idea. And here we had other people who are stars in their own right. And it made it so easy for me, quite frankly, because they were doing the hard stuff. Well, I'll be interested to talk in a few moments about then the evaluation of the data and the therapeutic decisions that uh, needed uh, to be made in terms of uh, insulin use. But before we get there, your last comment was a perfect segue asking you about implementation and, and the process and something that certainly will be of interest to listeners as they think about implementing a CGM program in the inpatient setting where wherever they happen to practice. So Megan, can you walk us through the implementation process? Yeah, the beginning phases was to provide education to everybody who was going to be involved as we previously discussed, but we also needed to find a simplified structure to um, de-identify these patients so we could have the results be streaming into a common area to be readily available for the nurses. So once that was all established and we were able to um, provide a tablet for the nurses in the middle of the nursing station to see that stuff, we worked closely with uh, other disciplines as well as times when uh, went on. We also worked with the IT department. We also worked with radiology. The reason for working with these departments is that we realized your Wi-Fi connectivity was a big player and success of these devices working. So we did have to work with them closely to help troubleshoot when it came to pairing the devices, as well as streaming that data from the smartphones to the tablet. And then also we had to work close with radiology because we were trying to protect um, the sensors and transmitters anytime that patients needed x-rays or things like that, and we hadn't properly communicated with them in the beginning. So by working with them, we were able to find ways into their workflow to help them identify patients who had these devices on. 
Got it. And and in your article, you really do provide uh, some pretty extensive information on implementation and even the 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 workflow in in Figure One that I think will be helpful as others uh, work to implement the program. Matt and Rachel, I'm wondering if you can talk about the decision to uh, include both uh, pharmacists and diabetes educators in the process, because you addressed that a bit in your article and there was some benefit to that. So I'm wondering if you can walk the listeners through that decision making. So I think Rachel started, she kind of alluded to this earlier. Um, You know, we found through different process change in pharmacy that multidisciplinary communication with any kind of initiative you're doing is really key. Um, Rachel says things, you know, we can have the same message, but we're using different words and you really come across the different disciplines in a different format. And if you can't get that message across, it's really kind of lost. Um, With the CGM scenario, and then you've got the point of care that the nurses are really very familiar with right there that they're using, they don't line up one-to-one. So, Understanding that and making sure that it was okay and that you could still use that for practice and what it meant was really key to making the project work and having Rachel work with us was key to their understanding. Rachel, what would you add to that? I definitely agree with that. Having the background in nursing um, and kind of understanding the everyday process of things and the trust that we place in the point of care and, you know, Nurses are very hesitant for um, new processes because they know what works and they know how to make those things work. Um, And so really taking the information we had and showing them, you know, this is why it's going to be beneficial and this is how it's going to fit into your workflow um, was something I think that I was able to bring into that group, um, you know, into the study. I also, you know, have a pretty because I was diabetes. I am a diabetes educator. Um, I had a pretty good rapport with the nurses already, as far as insulin and diabetes management, to where you know I could bring that with the rapport of the pharmacists um, and their knowledge to really help the nurses trust this process. Got it. So, Matt. The, the 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 big question what what were the outcomes what did you find as you evaluated the the program so when we went through and validated the numbers we looked at the mean absolute relative difference which is otherwise known as the mard um, if you look at this in an ambulatory setting it's right around nine percent for the inpatients we viewed it was just a little over ten percent so when you take into account the stress these patients were under that we were using a lot of steroids I really that those numbers not being that that discordant is relatively remarkable. We also underwent a grid analysis with a Clark error grid. Um, it showed 99% of the values were in the A and B range, meaning there shouldn't really be any chance of hurting a patient. We also looked at surveillance error grids, which showed 89% of the values were in the lowest risk category. Beyond that, and what was possibly more meaningful to me, was that we tried to take the CGM values and insert them where the point of care values were to see how care would have differed had we not used those. And we went after this because this is how we would evaluate the process for PNT or somewhere like that if we were trying to evaluate bringing it on site. Um, We found that 75% of the 238 pairs that we looked at, there would have been no difference in care. You would have done exactly the same thing based off the CGM value compared to the point of care. 
the other 25% of the time where the there was some inconsistency, it really would have meant moving up or down the correctional scale, a small amount of insulin, which would have been unlikely to make a massive impact on the patient. So follow up on that and, and Richard, again, to, uh, to, to go to that issue of those small changes in insulin dosing, any concerns that you had there as a member of the team, the, the differences between uh, the CGM and the point of care testing and the, the effects on ultimately the effect on the therapeutic intervention? What we really are at the frontier to a certain degree. Uh, we know that there's some limitations of, of what CGM does just by the nature of the fact that it's dealing not with blood, but with interstitial fluid. And we know that in the hospital, there are settings where people should have very abnormal interstitial fluid uh, chemistry, such as people with dialysis, people who are in heart failure or in shock. And we're starting to get data on that. And, and fortunately, we really didn't have a lot of that in this particular study, but there is data coming in from various places around the world. And as you look at it, for instance, the MARD that, that Matt was talking about is much better than some recently reported data on people on hemodialysis who had the MARD in the 20s, 23, 24%, which is still pretty darn good, actually. Uh, but there's other data that looks closer to ours as well. So we have to be at the same time that we're collecting this, instructing people as to the limitations of this technology, such as the fact that the finger stick glucose will reflect the rapid change faster than will this. And if you're not using trend analysis, you'd, you'd miss it. And at the same time, this is reassuring us. Uh, I think this article in particular, that actually much of the time, this is a safe way to do things, which actually solves a whole host of problems and gives us much better data. So I'm, I'm excited what I've seen from the paper, but of course there are things we have to think about going into the future. We don't know all the answers yet. Well, that's a, a great segue to another question I actually have. And so Matt, this was a, uh, a relative, it was a small group of patients that were involved here, 10, 10 patients. Uh, where does North Kansas City Hospital go now with this program? So currently, we have two studies that we're underway with regarding CGM. Um, one is still in COVID patients, and we are, you know, we've gone through our IRB and we're, we've made the appropriate assessments. Um, we are replacing point of care sticks a percentage of the time and using the CGM values and seeing a reasonable amount of success with that. Um, the idea of that process is that when we get to the point we're comfortable with it, we'll be able to reduce the number of uh, insulin drips used to be able to be a little bit more aggressive with like basal insulin and those pieces so that you, you've got a safety net with the CGM because you know the hypoglycemia awareness in the middle of the night and farther on that you can kind of help prevent those events. Uh, the second project that we're looking at is putting CGMs on patients prior to discharge to try and help with the transition from inpatient to outpatient phase and then following them for 90 days with one of our ambulatory pharmacists and trying to kind of get the whole back end piece with the A1C reduction. Got it. Got it. Rachel, what was your experience in terms of 
patients' reactions to having the the CGM monitors uh, in place in the inpatient setting? Did were did they have experience with uh, using them in the outpatient setting? Uh, how did they react? Most of the patients that I did um, educate did not have experience with the CGM outpatient. Um, they seem to be really interested in how this works and the option to not do finger sticks outpatient. Um, unfortunately, you know, they the patients did start to question, well, if this is valid outpatient, why do you still have to stick me inpatient? Um, you know, which is understandable. Nobody wants to get their fingers stuck multiple times, um, but definitely did see some excitement in patients who will get potentially get to use this as an out, on an outpatient basis when they didn't know it was an option. Got it. So, Megan, when you take a step back and you look at the the whole program, where were the hurdles? What were the what were the pain points in the implementation of the program? So. Oh. It's going to seem silly now, but at the time they seemed like big things we had to overcome. So some of the things we had to, um, we didn't really plan for was such things as like where electrical outlets were located. Um, when we placed uh, the smartphone devices, we had them in the nurse servers and there was not a electrical device close. So we had to quickly strategize so these phones wouldn't die and how to do battery packs and how to strategically do that. And that was just one of the things that we really didn't account for when we originally set up the program and getting these devices to patients. Another thing is whenever we place these on patients, we would put them on their abdomen. And as we all know, one of the biggest things with COVID-19 was proning. And we would have dislodgement or actually would lose connectivity when patients were proned. And so we really had to um, do real-time education with nurses of changing the site of insertion and going to the upper arm. And that was one hurdle that we had to, as it came up, just kind of roll with the punches as those things came up. Um, but overall, it was, it was well-received and we were able to tackle them as they came through. So in the article, you emphasize, and it's really one of the points at the, the very beginning of your article, that this was an evaluation in a community hospital setting. And I'm wondering, and, and I'll open this up to the to the group, are the challenges different? And so if it's a, a larger setting, a, a large hospital in an academic medical center, or a small and rural hospital, are there, are there going to be other challenges that those places are going to need to think about as they try to implement uh, CGM in the, in the inpatient setting? I, I mean, I can start here. Uh, I think the biggest thing was, um, we were able to implement and educate quickly just by the closely close working relationships and um, close um, multi-collaborative approach we have here at our hospital. Uh, in larger academic institutions, there may be a lot more processes and committees to go through to get the, it implemented quickly. And on the flip side of that, there may be less resources in a smaller rural hospital. We have 24-7 pharmacy services, so we as pharmacists were able to provide support 24-7 to help troubleshoot, help with implementation, initiation, so on and so forth. And that's just some things that come to mind for those two different types of settings for me. 
Matt, Rachel, Richard, anything you would add to that in terms of what colleagues in other settings, the, the hurdles that they might have to overcome to effectively implement a CGM program? I think people are not, not familiar with it, including providers at all levels. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking now that I, I talked about this to diabetes educators in Kansas City 13, 13 years ago. Uh, I have talked uh, actually several years ago to the physician community, primary care doctors locally, to endocrinologists at a, at, at a teaching program just recently, talking about our new standards of care. Uh, and the general data are that uh, probably 30% or fewer of the patients that should be on them are on them at this point in the outpatient setting. So there's really widespread um, hesitation and, and really lack of knowledge. And I think that's going to come uh, slowly because that's how it goes in medicine. It takes 17 years or so to get something actually implemented. And this will be no different because it's more complex, but it's going to be more far reaching. So I think, uh, hang on, I think it's, it's going to be quite a journey. Absolutely. Absolutely. Rachel, what would you add to that from a, from a nursing perspective? I, I mean, definitely agree that our, our providers as well as our nursing staff just have never heard of it or don't know what to think of it. Um, and just, again, that fear of implementing something new without, you know, feeling comfortable with it is going to be a huge barrier. But I feel like as we see more and more patients come in with these sensors and start to trust them more, that's what's going to really get the nursing buy-in. Matt, in the article, you, you talked about some of the influence of your institutional guidelines for insulin dosing and the, the effects that those had even on some of the differences possibly. So I'm wondering, is it is it too early or have you started to look at, I'm sure uh, all of you, but Richard, you as well, but and, and Rachel, you want to jump into this, but have, have you started to look at your institutional guidelines to, to start to make modifications? So right now we're not to the point yet where we would you know, adjust the correctional scale. That is one of the pieces that we really need to get to. The infrastructure necessary to really set this up and make it work and the fact that it doesn't pull into the medical record and the the volume of workarounds we're doing right now to make this, to facilitate this in the hospital, make it challenging. We've got to get through all those to get to the steps of really being able to make the large scale adjustments that will really be the, that's, that's when you'll see the big advantages come into play and we'll, when we'll be able to improve time and range for inpatients and be able to see improved outcomes and where you're really going to get the bank the buck, I feel like. Got it. That's all the time we have today. I want to thank Matt Baker, Megan Musselman, Rachel Rogers, and Richard Hellman for joining us to discuss their clinical report, Practical Implementation of Remote Continuous Glucose Monitoring in Hospitalized Patients with Diabetes, which was recently published on AJHP.org. Please join us here each month for discussions on contemporary practice issues and interviews with AJHP authors. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your colleagues, family, friends, and via your social media of choice. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you for listening to AJHP Voices. 
For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, please visit AJHP.org.